0: To podcast, this is episode eighty six. Good to have you uh, listening along. Thanks for coming. So, I want as I'm recording this. Uh, just a couple of days ago, the um, Mueller report dropped. Uh, this is Monday, and uh, the report was delivered last Friday, I think. And over the weekend, uh, Attorney General Barr uh, delivered his summary of the report and the report. And many millions of dollars uh, later, and a couple of years, and lots of subpoenas, and uh, quite a bit of to- toing and froing, uh, there was no evidence of collusion between the Russians and the uh, Trump campaign, and no um, basis for bringing a charge of um, of obstruction of justice. And so, basically, this is the the whole thing is um, is all good. So well it's all good if you're in Trump's corner. It's all good from Trump's perspective and there was much weeping and gnashing of teeth and and sobbing on the the left and and what it boils down to is um, when, when you consider how thin the evidence was for collusion on the one hand, for collusion between the The Trump campaign and the Russians on the one hand. And apparently the report indicates uh, there was no collusion despite numerous attempts uh, on the part of the Russians to set something up. There was... um, So there's... On the one hand, you've got the the proverbial nothing burger. Um, But the thing that's been odd or uh, obvious and odd to the observer, even from thousands of miles away, is the level of collusion that did in fact uh, go on, uh, uh, either collusion or ineptitude or a combination of, of all those when you consider Hillary Clinton's um, um, uh, missing emails and the unsecured uh, server and the pay-to-play operation of the Clinton Foundation and so on. Now, uh, here's, this, is the, uh, this is the difficulty. We have to make a distinction between what uh, one writer called normal politics and what another writer called uh, – the same writer, excuse me, called regime politics, normal politics and regime politics. In normal politics, uh, the country or the population of a country has a defined center that all the political parties, or all the main ones, anyway, uh, revolve around. There's some sort of core values, uh, shared values at the at the center, and so political debates would be would boil down to something like, shall we go northwest or shall we go north by northwest? Should we go this direction or slightly to the left of that direction or slightly to the right of that direction? So. That would be normal politics. That would be, uh, and that's why students of history, oftentimes, have difficulty describing the difference between uh, two presidential candidates uh, running against each other in the 1920s. Uh, you know, there there there's so much commonality that it's hard to uh, hard to define uh, what differences might exist uh, between them. All right, so. Um, in regime politics, it's uh, it's quite different. In regime politics, the debate is over whether we go east or west. Do we go toward the rising sun or do we go directly away from uh, the rising sun? And this uh, Mueller investigation that has now been um, concluded was an, an attempted exercise in regime politics. It was all about... Um, The left being unable and unwilling to accept to to simply accept the results of the 2016 presidential election. Now you can not like how the election went, uh, but refusing to accept the results of it is an example of regime politics. And what the Mueller investigation was um, whether. Whether or not this was Mueller's intention, his personal intention, uh, the intention that was projected onto the Mueller investigation by the left was, um, in effect, uh, a daydream about a slow-mo-basically, it was an attempt at a slow-motion coup. So we would have. We would have the Mueller investigation come back and say the President obstructed justice or the president uh, you know did this, that, or the other thing, or the 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 president colluded with the Russians, which which, if he in fact had done, uh, could be construed easily as high, as a high crime and misdemeanor and as uh, meeting the threshold for impeachment and of course, since the Democrats control the House, which is where um, the impeachment process Begins so basically, in under our constitution, the the uh, the House would basically indict the president, and if he's indicted, the impeachment has occurred, and then the Senate holds the trial. The, the but a lot of this was um, for show because the Democrats control the House and could probably, if there had been something there in the Mueller report, they could have brought something that uh, that was. Gave them enough cover to um, secure an impeachment, but then it would go over to the Senate, where and the Senate would uh, would try the case and and would almost uh, certainly fail unless there was the perver- proverbial uh, smoking gun. So what this means practically, and this is. Um, Course, I'm not a prophet or, or the son of a prophet. But what this means practically is, in the midterms, when the House, when the Democrats captured the House, and they immediately began gearing up for endless hearings. So we're going to investigate this and investigate that and investigate the other thing. Uh, what they're confront, what I think they're going to be confronted with now, is the singularly unappetizing prospect of conducting. Um, a series of hearings for which the American people have no appetite. In other words, we've just had two years of and two years and millions of dollars spent to find, you know, to check into these things and it comes up with a big nothing. And if the Democrats double down or triple down and conduct a number of hearings for which the population has no appetite, that's one thing. And if the, uh, candidates for the democratic nomination for president continue to veer ever leftward so that they they're basically a gaggle of communists i think they i think that they're setting their, themselves up for a royal uh, a royal disaster so in my book review section of uh, well book, book review section of Episode eighty six of our podcast. I, I want to talk a little bit today about the virtue of nationalism by uh, an Israeli gent named Hazoni. So the virtue of nationalism. Now, um, this is this really is a, uh, a a fascinating subject because everybody has got uh, their own set of assumptions and their own. Um, um, nervousness about nationalism. We, we uh, know that nationalism can go off the rails, and you can have um, uh, you know a nationalistic nightmare like you had with the the Nazis in Germany. That that was a nationalism. So basically, communism is international socialism, and fa- the the Nazis were national socialists. So. Um, and we think of nationalism, we think of someone who's just sort of unbalanced and uh, my country, uh, right or wrong, sort of um, thing. Uh, that quotation, my country, uh, right or wrong, comes from a, an early American um, naval hero named Stephen Decatur. Stephen Decatur. And, and it was a toast that he gave, and the full toast was, my country, may she always be right. But my country, right or wrong. Um, now, it, that's sort of like, um, as I think Chesterton once put it, toasting your mother and saying, "My mother, drunk or sober." Um, well, yeah, but that—that's um, wrong. That—that that would be uh, bad manners to talk that way. But at the same time, it's true. You know, she is your mother, drunk or sober, and that is your country, right or wrong. Uh, now, if you're if you mean by that uh, saying that uh, if if you mean by that saying that if your country's wrong, uh, it doesn't matter because it's your country and you're just going to shut up about it, then that's a real uh, problem. But Hazoni in this book shows that nationalism is actually a he he describes it as the ideal arrangement for peaceable relations among uh, the uh, among. The nations of men, and and there are several things, several important takeaways that I got from this book. One was how he uh, set up uh, in a very obvious way what the logical options are. So if if we have people all over the globe, and we do, then we're gonna have we're gonna organize ourselves in we're we're going to organize ourselves in a particular set of ways. Then there are only and there are a limited number of options. And basically currently the options are, and the first one's not that realistic an option, is um, we will organize ourselves according to tribes. That's number one. We're gonna organize ourselves according to nations, that's number two, and that's what Hazoni is arguing for. Or number three, it's going to be some form of globalism. So either tribal or national or global and anyone who talks about uh, how we ought to organize our affairs is going to have to fit what he's urging into one of those categories um, now I think uh, tribalism is would be a, a possible way to go in certain parts of the globe because tribes are still the uh, primary you know social social unit that interacts with the people in their, in their families, in their households. But for most of the globe, overwhelmingly, uh, people are dealing with nations, and there are globalists who are trying to establish the primacy of international law or the primacy of international treaties or the primacy of the United Nations or um, adjuncts to the United Nations. Hazzoni shows, and I think argues wonderfully... That uh, given those three options, every, every reflective Christian who looks at the specter of globalism and, uh, and what it would be likely to happen under that sort of thing, is going to want to opt for some form of nationalism. And, and I think that that um, uh, the other thing that Hazoni does is he, he shows that different nations, when when a particular nation is, um uh, you know, on its game, and is running around the world saying we're number one, uh, that nation is in an imperial phase, and that's just a particular form of globalism. So this book was just very helpful in setting out the, you know, what are the possible options? What are the possible ways to go? Uh, I, it's a readable book, not a, not a doorstopper. It's, it's not a big, huge book. It's, it's a readable book. The second uh, thing that I found very helpful about this book was his discussion of uh, social contract theory. There were some early modern political thinkers, uh, men like Thomas Hobbes and, um, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke, who postulated what is, came, has come to be known as social contract theory. Now, John Locke, who was very instrumental in the American founding, wanted to use social contract theory as a way of protecting the maximum number of rights for the individual. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau is rightly called by C.S. Lewis the father of the totalitarians, And Thomas Hobbes was something of an autocrat or an authoritarian himself. So generally speaking, uh, the social contract theorists were not friendly to individual liberty. Uh, John Locke was, but I think that the foundational assumptions in social contract theory actually run in the direction of Hobbes and Rousseau more than they do um, – more than they run in the direction that John Locke would want them to run in. And this is because social contract theory has to do with this primeval parliament that, you know, a a hypothetical construct, this primeval parliament where um, individuals surrender a certain number of their rights in exchange for safety, protection, protection of their remaining rights, and so on. So this is a hypothetical construct that enables us to function in society and gives the state legitimacy. The difficulty is, uh, for Christians—and this is not something Hazoni um, goes into, but it's something I saw reading his book, and it was very helpful in this regard—why uh, why do you have individuals voting at this hypothetical parliament? Why didn't we vote by household? Why didn't we vote by tribe? Why didn't we send the chieftain of the clan down from the highlands to represent our people? In the Bible, households are decision, decision-making units. Uh, we didn't fall as a race until Adam, the head, fell. Eve was deceived and sin was in the world, but Paul says in Romans 5 that sin didn't enter the world except through one man. So, when the head fell, we fell. Eve was deceived when she shouldn't have been, but that didn't cause the race to fall. Uh, when Abraham uh, decides to move uh, to the region of Hebron, his household is, you know, hundreds of people, and he makes the decision, and he moves, and everybody moves. There's no there's no um, reference to a referendum. So the decision-making unit, the, everything um, boils down to who were the decision-making units at this original primeval social contract social contract. And I want to argue that individualism is one of the hallmarks of modernity. And the reason we have so much individualism coming out in the conclusion is we embedded that individualism in the premises in the in the way the whole social contract uh, theory was set up in the first place. Anyway, if you're interested in this stuff, and, and you ought to be, this, this sort of thing is the kind of thing that floats my boat. And... Uh, you know, it ought to float yours too. You will really enjoy uh, the virtue of nationalism. God, God never so, continuing with podcast episode 86, we come now to our, um, uh, we come now to Hamartiology, our section where we're looking at. Uh, Greek words for various sins as they are listed in the New Testament. So, hamartiology. We, we learned some interesting things about Paul's use of the law from his use of the word anoma. In 1 Corinthians 9.21, he uses it four times. To them that are without law, there it is, anoma. To them that are without law, as without law. Being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. So here he's referring to his relationship to the Torah and to what the new perspective on Paul folks are calling boundary markers. But the word anoma almost always carries connotations of moral failing also, which is why when Paul says that, uh, he hastens to add, being not without law to God, right? So um, in uh, Matthew fifteen twenty eight, it says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Transgressors there would be those without law. The same point is made on a different occasion in Luke twenty two thirty seven. It's and, and the word is used in a phrase in First John three four, in a way that means transgress the law. Whoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. And again in the second half of that same verse, sin is transgression of the law. This means that these categories are not as watertight as some people might want to think. So, anoma without the law. God God. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit CanonPress.com.